Please rise for the reading of God's Word and read four brief passages today to set the table for the sermon. First, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Matthew 4, 4, man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Galatians 1.9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And then Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the 35th anniversary of my ordination to the gospel ministry. I have preached and taught thousands of imperfect sermons and lessons over these years, entire books of the Bible, a wide range of biblical topics, as well as the application of Scripture to social and current events. But at the heart of all of them, at the very center, has been the message of grace, the marvelous grace of God. Every part of the Bible, every topic in the Bible, point to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When it reveals God or talks about sin or judgment, when it gives us law or ceremony, when it prophesies or when it sings, it all points to Him and to the grace of God. However, grace is the message that we tend to forget, and it is the message that we must never forget. The doctrines of grace, the theology of grace, stand at the center, and everything else flows from there. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, the devil loves to water down and corrupt the truth. He wants you to try and be your own God, to try to save yourself, because he knows that you can't. And every time your good works get inserted into the equation of salvation, whether it's 1% you or 99% you plus God, then God's glory is diminished. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. As I said, God's people are forgetful. We are subject to dullness, to apathy, to boredom, to drift, to bad attitudes. It's an ancient story and one that the Bible warns about over and over and over. We're tempted always to want the new, the novel, the cool. God who is unchanging keeps calling us back to the same old thing. 
In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, Uncle Screwtape, the master devil counsels his junior apprentice, Wormwood, to use tried and true techniques to seduce souls into sin, and one tactic he highly recommends is the strategy that perverts man's natural love of change. And here's what he says, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart, an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. Since sin has affected us from near, near the very beginning, the need for reformation is therefore an ancient thing as well. Corruption, you see, destroys even the loveliest things. The most beautiful things are marred by sin. And so also from the near beginning, because of His great and marvelous grace, God brought forth a plan of redemption to restore, to do more than restore, to take us to an even greater height of glory in Christ. So the story of the church in the Old and New Testament and throughout church history has been one of reformation for individuals, for the church, and indeed for the world. And so remembering it's important if we are not to lose our way, remembering is important if we're not to lose our way, Forgetfulness is one of the great sins that God deals with in the Bible. In fact, each week we come to the table to remember. Why? Did you forget? Did you forget who Jesus is and why He came and what His death means? Did you forget that this past week? Did you forget who you are and why you're here? Yes, you did. Some. Some more than others. And so we come back and we start over every week remembering because we are prone to forget even the most important things. And so, sound doctrine is essential to right living. I think today's sermon will tie in with what our nation needs as well. Perhaps you too could use a little remembering and a little reformation in your life. And so I call you now to remember your sins, but also to remember the marvelous grace of God and to reflect and to consider, and to advance. The need for reformation is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing necessity because the temptations are constant, the sins are real. And so the weekly proclamation of God's Word and Gospel, along with the weekly uh, proclamation of the cross and the death of Christ in the sacrament, is the primary work of the church. Man's only hope is found in the message of grace that God does all the saving and we contribute nothing. Free grace is good news. In the early days of this congregation, a small group of young and dedicated Christians gathered weekly with their children in what, shall we say, less than optimal conditions. They sat and listened to lectures and sermons, some of them an hour long or more, from a cassette player. And I'm not talking about a few times. I'm talking about week after week. This is no way to build a church. It was here where they first learned about the doctrines of grace. 
You see, good students can learn even under bad conditions. And many of those people are still sitting here today. I know of other churches that began in similar ways. Because a church is built on the truth, and the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about sin, and the truth about grace. And of course, the Bible gives us the whole picture. God tells us the whole truth, the ugly parts and the lovely parts. In fact, it is the dark background of our sinfulness and depravity that sets, the, sets, up, sets up the stark contrast for the brightness and the glory of His marvelous grace in, in Christ. Since the first of this year, I've preached on the ugliness of sin and the place of word and sacrament. The Scriptures have warned us not to be cheated through philosophy, not to have the Gospel watered down or adulterated by other ideas, because the temptation to synergism is both ancient and current. At the time of the Reformation, the church and her doctrine had become severely corrupted, so much so that the gospel was all but lost. Martin Luther, in a rather unexciting manner, challenged this with the posting of his 95 theses on the university door. Roland Baton, one of his biographers, gives a poetic description of what happened when God used this faithful but rather <clears throat> unassuming act to shake the world. Some of you have heard this, but I always like to cite it again. Luther was like a man climbing in the darkness of a winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope, and he was startled to hear the clanging of a bell. The Reformation was a rediscovery of grace. Robert Capon describes what happened during the Reformation where these doctrines of grace were rediscovered. He says, The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering, drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter the case. We are Reformed Christians. Children of the Reformation. And it's these doctrines of grace that make us reform. That's the center. Luther wrote, But grace is so great that it amazes a human creature. And it's very difficult to be believed, insomuch that faith gives the honor to God that He can and will perform what He promised, namely, to make sinners righteous 
Though it is exceeding, it is an exceedingly hard matter to believe that God is merciful to us for Christ's sake. And Calvin wrote to Francis I, Nothing is more consistent with faith than to acknowledge ourselves naked of all virtue, that we may be clothed by God, empty of all good, that we may be filled by Him, lame, that we may be guided, weak, that we may be supported by Him, to divest ourselves of all ground of glorying, that He alone may be eminently glorious, and that we may glory in Him. What was the light that arose in the darkness? What is the heritage that the Reformation has left to us? The issue at stake was not obscure or irrelevant. It was the issue that was at the very heart of the relationship between man and God. And that issue is justification. That's the heart of the Reformation. The basic religious question, how can a man become right with God? Of course, this question presupposes that man is wrong with God. This was Luther's burning question. He found the answer in Paul's epistle to the Romans and the Galatians that we are justified by faith alone through grace alone. Romans 3.24, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So how can a sinner become just with God or right with God? The question is no less intense today, and the issue is not only at the heart of the Reformation, it is at the heart of the Gospel. It's the proclamation that a sinner is accepted by God because he is clothed with a righteousness that is not his own. A righteousness in which omniscience cannot find even a tiny spot or blemish. Why so? Because it is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is God's righteousness contrasted not only with human unrighteousness, but with human righteousness. And this righteousness is a free gift. It's all grace. Justification by faith alone was summarized in the five slogans of the Reformation. You know them. Scripture alone. It's only by the faithful exposition of the written Word of God that the Holy Spirit brings the Gospel to us. In other words, Scripture is sufficient. Grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. We contribute nothing. Christ alone. Our righteousness is not accomplished by ourselves, but by another. By Christ alone. Faith alone. By faith alone we receive Christ and His all-sufficient righteousness. And then ultimately, the fifth, glory to God alone. This faith takes all credit from the believer and gives all the glory to saving the sinner to God alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As each of these slogans is inherent 
in the salvation of every sinner, so too each of them is implied in the other. Now, the last couple of Sundays that I preached, I spoke about the inerrancy, the authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. And so, I have covered much of this first point about Scripture alone. Nevertheless, I do have a few more things I'd like to say on this topic, and in the weeks ahead, we are going to look at some aspects of these others. You see, the Reformers were concerned about ultimate, the ultimate authority of Scripture. It was not the Pope, or the church councils, or tradition, or personal ideas and feelings. Likewise, God's Word has been set aside in our day and replaced by the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, a mix of rationalism and mysticism and now postmodernism. You see, the world is full of alternative ultimate authorities. It's also full of idols, false gods. Other sources of authority can be important, but Scripture authority was and is ultimate and sufficient. Do we need to add something to Scripture? Psalm 19 compares God's natural revelation, where he talks about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, and then he goes on in the latter part of Psalm 19, and he compares that with the written revelation of God, and we read this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. What does he quote? How does he resist temptation? He quotes Scripture. It is sufficient as we face temptation. And in 2 Timothy 3, Paul instructs Timothy on how the Scriptures are able to make him wise unto salvation and indeed to equip him and make him sufficient for every good work. So where is a man to find the answer to the ultimate question, how can a sinner be made right with God Is he going to discover it on his own? Shall he devise his own plan of justification? You see, the question of ultimate authority must be answered first. Who has the knowledge? Who has the right to speak authoritatively to such a question? The Roman church asserted that the Scriptures were authoritative, but immediately subordinated that authority, stripping it of its substance and power. According to them, it was the Scriptures as interpreted by the church, by the bishops, by the pontiff. In other words, there was an ultimate authority above the Scriptures. The church maintained the authoritative right to answer the question, how can a sinner be made right with God? The disastrous results produced an elaborate answer whereby a sinner had original sin washed away in baptism and was thereby made capable of being righteous himself. 
through sacraments, the mass, indulgences, confession, penitence, prayers to the dead, saints, beads, icons, the treasury of merit, and much more, the sinner could pull himself up and be just before God. The sinner, with God's help, of course, could save himself. The reformers rediscovered the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture alone, as the written, revealed Word of God Himself, could speak authoritatively concerning the sinner's need and the sinner's remedy. God is His own interpreter, and He spoke plainly through His Son and in the written Word, as Peter writes, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. The Gospel of salvation is revealed by God, recorded in the Scriptures, preached in the church, and applied by the Holy Spirit, For our salvation, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's in the Scriptures alone where the sinner learns authoritatively that if he is to be saved, it will be by the grace of God alone. Left to himself, he is hopeless, helpless. He can't be cleaned up enough to become righteous himself. If he is to be saved, it will be totally the work of God's marvelous grace. We supply nothing but the sinners to be saved. All the credit, all the praise for salvation belongs to God. It is free grace. But one other point I want to make about this in regard to the sufficiency of Scripture is that the Scriptures not only are sufficient in regard to the way of salvation, but also for directing our lives. God does not guide us by an inner voice. He has given us all the guidance we need in the Bible. When we remain ignorant of or fail to apply the Scriptures to our marriages, children, finances, work, education, neighbors, church, society, and state, we should expect it to fail. The Bible itself is a powerful example of the grace of God. By giving us the Bible, His Word, He has shown us His ill-deserved favor. Romans 3, 1 and 2. What advantage does the Jew have? What profit was circumcision? In other words, what advantage is it to be in the covenant? Much in every way, first, you've been given the oracles of God. That's yours. How valuable is that? What's that worth? And it was just given to you. Of course, the Holy Spirit is at work enabling us to understand and apply the Word. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. James Montgomery Boyce cites a great example of how Scripture alone is sufficient to transform people and societies when he, tells, or when he cites the story of John Calvin at Geneva. In 1535, the Council of 200, which governed the city of Geneva, Switzerland, which, by the way, was a moral mess, invited John Calvin to become Geneva's chief pastor and preacher. 
He arrived in August of 1536, a year after the change from Catholic to Protestant. He was ignored at first, even by the council. He wasn't even paid the first year. Besides, his first preaching proved his first preaching proved so unpopular that he was dismissed in early 1538 and went to Strasbourg, where he was very happy. He had no desire to go back to Geneva. Yet, when the situation in Geneva continued to deteriorate, public opinion turned to him again, and driven by a sense of duty, Calvin returned. It was September 13, 1541. Calvin had only one weapon, and that was the Bible. From the very first, his emphasis had been on the Bible's teaching, and he returned to it now, picking up precisely where he had left off three and a half years earlier. He preached from the Bible every day, and under the powerful the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. And as the people of Geneva acquired the knowledge of God's Word and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the new world. By the way, that would be you and me. This change made other changes possible. There probably has never been a clearer example of extensive moral and social reform than the transformation of Geneva under the ministry of John Calvin, and it was accomplished almost entirely by the preaching of God's Word. Why is the Bible able to do that? It's able to do it because it is God-breathed. It's not like any other book. That is, it's the very Word of God and therefore carries with it the authority and the power of God. That's exactly it. And that's what we need. That's what everybody needs. And only the Word of God is sufficient for that. Let's pray. O gracious Father, as we contemplate your gifts to the church, we stand in awe of those who you have allowed to lead the church militant. As we set aside time to recall how you have worked in the past, we are thankful that through the dedicated and zealous efforts of your servants, you have preserved to us the wonderful gospel of grace in its truth and purity. May the Holy Spirit not only bring to us the joy and the peace of your marvelous grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, but may he also kindle in us the unquenchable desire to share that grace with others. May we never yield on one point of these great doctrines, lest we lose our Reformation heritage, our faith in Jesus, and have nothing to pass on to those who may follow us. We ask this in the name of Christ crucified and risen, the Savior of the world, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God through all eternity. Amen. Luther wrote, God works by contraries so that a man feels himself to be lost in the very moment when he is on the point or the verge of being saved. When God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would make alive, he must first kill. 
God's favor is so communicated in the form of wrath that it seems farthest when it is at hand. Man must first cry out that there is no health in him. When a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. Peace comes in the word of Christ through faith. Romans 1, 18 and 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what, be made, what may be made known... What may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then in Romans 5, 6-11, For when we were still without strength. You got that picture? God's revealed himself in the creation so that every man, every person is without excuse. There's tons of evidence. Enough that he says, again, no excuse. Literally no apologetic. No defense. But then Romans 5 goes on to say, For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebels, while we were blind, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So again, we come to this table to remember those things. Remember what he has done. What has he done? He's done it all. Every bit of it. We didn't, don't say, well, come to see, you know, he's done part and I've done part. No, this is not a, this is not a uh, cooperative effort. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were utterly helpless. The carnal mind is hostile toward God. It cannot please God, for it is not even able to do so. So God moved. First, we love him because he first loved us. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ, that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call that we might actively evangelize the nations. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, indeed to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, the world is without excuse, but not without hope. The nations weary themselves in vain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Bless now our feast, our fellowship, and our rest. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, we pray in his name. Amen.